Hi, my name is Reese Wells. My pronouns are he, him, his, and this is the Counseling Connection Podcast. Hi, y'all. Just a couple of housekeeping things. For those listening in, you may notice that the audio sounds are different from the first podcast episode to this one. We're just exploring some new options for the recording process and are still dialing it in. Overall, I'm pleased with the quality of this recording. However, there are a couple of bumps along the way. Another thing, as we're getting the counseling connection out there into the public sphere, it's important to get your thoughts. Please reach out if you have topics that you would like discussed. Also, if our topic for today is meaningful to you, if it is impactful, and I believe that this is a really powerful subject, please consider sharing it with your community. Okay, I'm pumped. (laughs) Today's topic is birth trauma, what it is, major themes, risk factors, and prevention. Today, I am interviewing Bryony Crane, who is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and owner of Rebirth Counseling and Coaching, a private psychotherapy practice in Raleigh, North Carolina. Bryony spent the beginning stages of her career working at a domestic violence shelter and various university counseling centers. But after the birth of her daughter in 2016, she became inspired to learn more about perinatal mental health and primarily focuses on this area in her practice. She is particularly passionate about advocacy and awareness related to traumatic childbirth. I'm really psyched about this episode. If you're interested, you can find articles and additional information from my website at reesewells.com. And now, Bryony Crane. Okay, sweet. So this is our second Counseling Connection podcast. I'm really excited to have Bryony Crane with us today. Thanks so much for taking some time, Bryony. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And our topic is talking about birth trauma, which is something that you specialize in and have done work in and give presentations in. And it's something that I admittedly, before being connected with you, didn't know much of anything about. So I feel really excited to get a chance to connect with you tonight and learn more for myself. And so this podcast tonight is going to be exploring birth trauma, what it is, what it looks like, treatment, and prevention. So I'm going to take a back seat and let Bryony really take over. Um, and I guess to, to just start off the conversation, what drew you to the field of mental health counseling? Sure. So um, growing up, I was uh, part of a family that did foster care um, for adolescent girls. And pretty much from the time I was four up until I was in high school, we always had um, a foster sister living with us. And um, I remember as a younger child kind of reading through the books and the literature and the manuals that the foster agency gave us um, voraciously and really couldn't get enough. I just kind of was soaking it up. And, and most of the girls that lived with us had some history of some mental health stuff and um then I shadowed one of our case managers, or a social worker, um, for career shadowing day in middle school and was able to see that she was overworked and underpaid. And it sort of diverted me momentarily from thinking that it, that might be a good career choice. But then I went to undergrad at NC State and got a degree in communications, and the itch just kind of never went away. And so I started um, volunteering for a suicide hotline. Um, to kind of dip my toes in the water after graduation and 
loved it. And I just knew this is what I should be doing. So I went back and got my uh, master's degree in counseling. And then what drew you to birth trauma? Sure. So um, the bulk of my career, I became licensed um, as a now clinical mental health counselor, used to be licensed professional counselor um, back in 2010. And initially, most of my career was spent working in the university setting in counseling centers. And I love that work. And I still have a passion for that work. But um, I kind of got burnt out on it and took a step back from counseling for a while. And during that time, I got pregnant and I had my daughter. And she was born in um, 2016. And my birth experience with her was certainly a traumatic experience for me. And as a true counselor, after her birth, I kind of felt like something was wrong. I knew I wasn't in a good place emotionally or mentally. So I got online and I started researching. And I stumbled across an article about traumatic childbirth, and it was like all the bells started going off. Oh, my gosh, this article describes me to a T. And as a professional counselor, I was really dismayed that this was the first time I had ever heard about this. And I'm a counselor. And I also knew that most people didn't have the tools and the research that I did to be able to identify it as easily and quickly as I did. And so, of course, after I did my own work and felt like I had gotten to a a good place emotionally, um, I really just felt super passionate about talking really openly about my experience and also learning more about how I could help other people who experience the same thing. And I um, started doing a lot of training around perinatal mental health, um, and that's when I launched my practice. So my practice specializes in um, working with all sorts of issues around pregnancy and postpartum. Um, but my kind of real passion, the thing I love to talk about and I love to work with folks on is birth trauma. Thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And, you, you know, I think that you really touched on something that I I feel is that I don't know anything about birth trauma. I mean, I can put the two, the two words together and, and conceptualize it in some way. Um, and I also think that's a failure of, my graduate education that this was the first time I was hearing about it when I was connected to you. Yeah. So I really appreciate you taking the space in our conversation to explain to us what is birth trauma, what it looks like, signs, and how to, how to prevent it from happening. Sure, absolutely. So, so, so let's create an operational definition of birth trauma. What is it and how would you define it? Sure. So – I will say that the terms birth trauma and traumatic childbirth are sort of interchangeable. Um, And basically the gist is that birth trauma is trauma resulting from a childbirth experience. Um, And typically we see some of those kind of hallmark symptoms of PTSD or acute stress disorder following the birth experience. There's a researcher named Cheryl Beck who has done some really phenomenal foundational research around traumatic childbirth and quite literally wrote the book, Traumatic Childbirth. Um, And she is a wonderful resource. But she, in one of her first writings in 2004, she defined um, birth trauma as an event occurring during the labor and delivery process that involves actual or threatened serious injury or death to the mother or her infant. 
the birthing woman experiences intense fear, helplessness, loss of control, and horror. And this is really in line with kind of the way we define PTSD in the DSM, right, is that there has to have been some sort of threat to life or perceived threat to life. Um, but for any of us who've ever worked with trauma, we know that trauma doesn't really fit neatly in that box. There's so many people that feel traumatized by an experience where maybe they weren't truly afraid for their life or someone else's, but regardless, the experience left them feeling traumatized, right? So in 2013, she revised that definition and now includes an event occurring during labor and delivery where the woman perceives she is stripped of her dignity. Um, and so we've kind of added some more to that definition to encompass situations where maybe she didn't feel that her life was in danger or her infant's life was in danger per se, but she came away from the experience just feeling really violated. Um, and as you can imagine, that can happen in a lot of different physical or emotional ways. Yeah, yeah it sounds, sounds heavy. And as you're speaking, Bryony, I'm wondering, what's, how, how prevalent is this? How, how often is, is this happening? Sure. So the most recent numbers I've seen is that 25 to 30% um, of women describe that some aspect of their birth was traumatic. Huge number, right? Um, and what's so important about birth trauma, and I think this is true of most traumas that we deal with, um, there's a lot of kind of gray, a large spectrum between this piece of my birth was traumatic, but overall I still feel positive about the experience, and I'm now meeting criteria for a PTSD diagnosis, right? And so there are lots of degrees in there where people can fall. And so that number, that 25 to 35%, really including anyone who says that some aspect of their birth was traumatic, the numbers around people who qualify for a, like a PTSD diagnosis, the last time I've seen that number was around 9%, still very high. Um, when we think about the fact that we hear much more about postpartum depression and numbers there, numbers I've seen vary from like 10 to 13%. So considering that most people haven't ever heard of traumatic birth, I think that really says a lot about the lack of information and good research that's out there about this topic. Yeah, I mean, 9% of births are, have been described as meeting criteria for PTSD, and still this is a, a topic that is not in the public eye. Yes, yes. So you can see why uh, I really kind of took it as my duty to talk really openly about this and bring some awareness to it, recognizing that so many people experience this. And my experience having learned about this now is that when I bring this topic up in a group of people, anywhere I am, inevitably someone goes, oh, my gosh, my birth was horrible. But I didn't know there was this name. For this, And in fact, when I presented on this topic, every single time people have been waiting in line to talk to me afterwards and they say, oh, my gosh, this was me. And I never knew that there was this name for this. Thank you so much. So that tells me there's a lot of opportunity for awareness around this. And a lot of opportunity of healing, too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so in thinking about birth trauma and you know, painting broad strokes before we get into some of the more specifics of it, what are some of the major themes that you've seen relating to birth trauma? Sure. So um, 
you know, probably the easiest way to summarize something that most of these situations have in common is that the birth was not the way that the birthing person imagined or hoped that it would be. And I just want to add a quick note in here. You might hear me throughout this podcast say birthing person or non-birthing partner. Um, and I do that really intentionally because I want to encompass all different types of family dynamics, whether we are talking about men, women, trans women, trans men, um, same-sex couples. There's so many different types of families that often really feel left out in the literature and the discussion about these topics because we, we always say mother or woman, and that doesn't really capture everyone. So um, I will flip up because I always do, but I just want to add a note if anyone's wondering why I'm using that terminology, that's why. Um, so there's generally this theme that the birth was not kind of what the person hoped or imagined that it would be. Um, and generally sort of a feeling of being out of control. And birth generally is a little bit of an out-of-control, kind of out-of-body experience in some ways. Um, but there's a real feeling of, I'm not in charge here. I'm not the one making decisions. Decisions are being made about me and about this experience without in informing me or consulting me. Um, I also typically see following the birth and when I see folks in my office, Oftentimes, there can be a resulting kind of hypervigilance around their child. Um, it's interesting because in videos that I've watched um, with people who have had traumatic birth, sometimes there is that detachment from the baby following the birth where the person is just really not in a good headspace to kind of build that formative bonding um, with their child. But oftentimes, it can kind of swing in the other direction where there's this real anxiety and concern and worry about the baby. And that can come out as anxiety. It can come out as some OCD-type tendencies or behaviors. Um, when I had my daughter for the first year after she was born, every morning when I woke up, I would lay in bed and prepare myself to find her dead in her crib. And I thought that was normal. I thought, well, gosh, this must just be what it's like to love someone this much that I'm constantly in fear of her dying. And it was matter of fact, there wasn't a lot of emotion associated with it. It was just sort of like, okay, I'll go in there. Hopefully she's alive. And it wasn't until I started really learning more about birth trauma and hearing other people's experience that I thought, huh, maybe everyone doesn't feel that way for the first year after their child's birth. So that kind of is an example of some of that hypervigilance and that kind of anxiety that can arise. Um, oftentimes there are feelings of guilt or failure, something that I have observed a lot in kind of the perinatal world in general um, is that I have so many clients who are really um, intent on a delivery where they don't need any type of pain medication um, and also being able to breastfeed following the delivery. And if either of those don't happen, there's this real feeling that somehow my birth or my experience as a mother doesn't add up. I'm not as good of a mother as someone who is able to breastfeed their child, no problem, and I'm giving my baby formula. Or um, I really wanted to have a quote-unquote natural delivery and I got an epidural, so maybe I can't hang the way that 
my friend does who was able to push her baby out no problem. And there's this real feeling of comparison and sort of wanting to win that trophy of the best delivery. And it it really saddens me because um, no matter how you have your baby, it is a profound, phenomenal, life-changing experience. And the fact that women are beating themselves up, that it didn't go the way that they hoped, um, is really uh, a cultural phenomenon that I have seen a lot and, and really struggle with. Um, so those are some of the kind of general themes or commonalities that I've seen in a lot of the stories that I've heard. Yeah, a lot of like loss of control, sense of guilt, and, like major yes. major themes that we see with with trauma. Yeah, and there's that grief piece that I think when we label the grief too, it's really validating because um, there often is this sort of idealized picture that we paint of what our birth experience should look like or our postpartum experience. And when you don't get what you hoped for, there is a sense of grief. There's a real sense of loss because you don't get that time back. And for many women who have a traumatic birth, they're not going down that road a second time. And so if that didn't happen the way that you hoped it did, you don't get the chance to redo it. And even if you did, the chance that it would then go exactly the way you hoped the second time is pretty fun too. And so there's a real sense of loss and grief. And also the same is true with breastfeeding. A lot of women really yearn for that and hope for that opportunity and that bonding experience with their baby and when they don't get that there can be a lot of grief around that too so the trauma and the grief oftentimes go hand in hand yeah yeah and i appreciate you naming that it birth trauma isn't just during the birthing process it can also come after the birthing is complete that's exactly right yeah so we you know the idea of traumatic childbirth suggests that there were traumatic things that happened in the delivery room Um, But that trauma and grief oftentimes carries over to when you go home with the baby. And that's also assuming that you go home with a baby. So sometimes traumatic childbirth results in a loss of a pregnancy or an infant. Um, And those are exceptionally difficult cases. And I see them fairly often that women come into my office who have had a stillbirth, for example, and, um, of course, also found a general experience experience of the birth to be really traumatic. So women oftentimes really hope for and anticipate that when they bring this baby home, it's going to be this really warm, fuzzy, memorable, meaningful time of bonding and connection with baby and family coming over and meeting baby and hunkering down and kind of really solidifying that bond. And Many times if women have had a traumatic childbirth experience, it just doesn't look that way. Um, Any of us who have been through trauma know it's anything but warm and fuzzy. And not only that, but maybe you don't have the tools or the language to identify, describe, or even know what's happening internally. You just know that this wasn't what you imagined it would be. And so when someone comes into treatment, and we finally get to a place of naming it and starting to, to address those issues. We also have to address the grief about 
the time that was quote unquote lost that you can't ever get back with that child. So if someone felt really detached or unable to bond or connect or just sort of not present in their body during that period of time, which could be years, um, there's oftentimes a period of mourning that the loss of that time with your child that you won't ever be able to get back. It's a pretty, pretty high stakes. Very much so, yes. And that's something that's really fascinating about this topic when you start moving through kind of diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And so much of what we talk about in the diagnostic criteria are um, those cues that remind you of your trauma. The baby is the biggest cue. And so imagine that you're trying to bond and grow this relationship with this person whose very existence constantly reminds you of your trauma. And so we see a lot of grief and sadness around birthdays. Um, you know, if a birthing person needs to return to their provider's office for follow-ups, which is really good care, um, there may be avoidance of following up on those types of appointments and resources. So when we think about just the general avoidance that tends to come with PTSD, and how that might really get in the way of developing both a relationship with your baby, but also good follow-up health care, you can see how really complicated and complex that problem can be. Yeah, no kidding. I felt really sad hearing that your child can be your biggest and constant cue of, yes. of your trauma. Yes. I'm just sitting with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's heavy. Yeah. It's hard. And I think um, I actually felt fortunate in my experience because I felt like me and my daughter had gone through this thing together and we were like super rock solid and no one could ever touch our bond because they didn't go through the fire together like we did. And I always felt really fortunate that that was my expression of the trauma versus like, I don't want to look at you. I don't want to think about you. I don't want to hear you cry because it all just brings this trauma back. And so I think it can go both ways, and there are problematic um, parts about both of those ways of functioning and dealing. But I feel fortunate that in my case, I, it didn't feel that it impacted that relationship negatively. But it is very sad when you connect with folks who have had that kind of experience, because then that guilt and shame piece starts to creep back into about how not only did I not have the birth that I hoped for, but I wasn't the mom that I hoped that I would be on top of that. And that's a tough thing to make sense of and make peace with. Yeah. And we're, we're starting to get into this question already, but I'm curious, like, what are, like, what are the risks of, of birth trauma? Like what, what are the consequences that, that you've seen in your work? So if someone experienced birth trauma, kind of how could that, uh, the consequences of that on the birthing person and the child. Yeah, so I think um, when we think about sort of traditional expressions of trauma or PTSD, um, we think about uh, certainly the hypervigilance piece. There can be some depression mixed in there, so just sort of a lot of tearfulness, um, sadness, despondency, um, Again, sometimes I do see that OCD piece, and perinatal OCD 
can look a little different than traditional OCD. Um, when we think of postpartum OCD, for example, sometimes it can be that pure O kind of intrusive thought expression of OCD. Um, and oftentimes what it looks like is that the birthing person um, has really scary images pop into their mind of them harming their baby. Um, it could be constantly imagining themselves dropping the baby. It could be imagining a knife sitting on the kitchen counter and all of a sudden you just have this image pop in your head of grabbing the knife and stabbing the baby. So you can imagine how horrifying and scary that is. Um, sometimes it manifests as sexual intrusive thoughts. So sometimes folks um, kind of obsessively worry that they're going to sexually abuse their children. And that is extremely difficult for folks to deal with because there's so much stigma and shame around that, that the fact, the idea that they might mention that to anyone is pretty slim to none. Um, and so we see some of that with the trauma is that there's been that OCD piece or high anxiety that follows. And I've also seen that a good bit with kind of germophobia where um, particularly, I see this in women whose babies had to go into the NICU or have any type of special care after being born. When they come home with baby, they are very hypervigilant about exposure to germs. And I can just imagine with coronavirus how that has become very much exacerbated because the most effective treatment I'm able to do with those folks is I know it feels like it's really dangerous to take your baby out, but it's going to be okay, and here's why it's going to be okay, and here's the data, and here's what your pediatricians are telling you about their risk. All that's gone out the window with COVID because providers are saying, don't take your baby out. Don't let people hold your baby. There's a real risk there. And so we can't really do that sort of um, treatment around that those fears are overblown when they really aren't right now. And so when someone has any of that sort of mental health stuff coming in postpartum, that can certainly impact things like good sleep. Um, if a person is breastfeeding, nutrition is really important postpartum, but as anyone who's been really depressed or traumatized or anxious knows, you might not really have much of an appetite. You might not really feel like eating. So that can come into play. Things like your ability to leave the house and do your follow-up appointments, um, kind of get back to life with the baby can be really diminished if you're feeling highly anxious or, or traumatized. Um, we luckily, you know, there, there is a potential for there to be some developmental impact on baby. If mom really just doesn't want to have anything to do with the baby, isn't connecting with the baby at all. And one thing we talk to women about who are experiencing postpartum depression and really are having that sort of detachment from baby is fake it till you make it. So we talk about holding baby, nurturing baby, soothing baby, connecting with baby, even when you don't want to and even when it doesn't feel natural and even when you aren't feeling in the mood, do it anyway because it's, that is still helpful for baby. And later you might look back and say, gosh, I'm really glad that I was still able to be there for that baby in the way that I wanted to be, even though it wasn't kind of organically happening at the time. So that's there's some ways that we can talk to women about um, kind of keeping that connection and that bonding experience occurring, 
even when your instinct is to push away or withdraw, and that can be really helpful. Cool. Thanks for um, yeah, sharing more about that. And it's it's making me think, Bryony. I'm I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the like the the demographics, the cultural considerations with birth trauma? Yeah. So. Um, Folks may have heard in the media over the last couple of years, there's been some pretty groundbreaking research around uh, the maternal mortality rate in the United States. And as a developed country, we are uh, performing very poorly in terms of maternal mortality. And we see that really uh, clearly in the black community. So our maternal mortality rate is for black women is about three times that of white women in our country. All signs kind of point to that being a function of racism. And the way that plays out in childbirth is there's a couple different things. Um, so one is there's this theory of weathering. And weathering basically speaks to the long-term impact that stress has on a person's body over the course of their lifetime you're really being weathered as you're going through life and you're experiencing the constant chronic stress that we know is associated with being a victim of racism over the course of a lifetime. And as people are experiencing this weathering impact on their body, when they go to experience an event like childbirth, which really pregnancy and childbirth takes a toll on anybody's body, um, there are higher chances for there to be some medical complications just because of the kind of health that you're in when you enter pregnancy. Um, we know that black women have higher rates of high blood pressure and heart disease. So one of the most complicating factors for pregnancy and childbirth is preeclampsia, which is elevated blood pressure during pregnancy. And so we know that we're seeing more of that with black women and that can also lead to some a higher potential for complications around childbirth. Um, but where we can really clearly see how racism plays a role here is that there are some lingering attitudes about um, black women in the medical community that really impact the care they receive. And so um, examples of this are dismissing a woman's concerns if she comes in and says like, hey, something just doesn't feel right. I just, you know, can you check me out? I'm just feeling like there's something not right. Those uh, complaints are much more likely to be dismissed coming from black women because there's this idea that they don't know their body as well as the doctor does. Um, and we see this, right, in the counseling world. We're kind of taught, hopefully, in our training that the client is the expert and we know what happens when the therapist decides, no, I'm the expert. We really need to be open to collaborating with the client and being curious about their hunches and their life and their instincts about themselves. And unfortunately, many times in the medical community, we're not seeing that collaborative approach. We're not seeing that kind of deference to the patient really knowing their body better than we might. Um, so that's one piece. There's also been some interesting research about providers' perception of patients' pain levels, particularly for black women, that providers believe 
the research the article about this is really fascinating, but essentially that providers oftentimes believe that black women can sustain a higher level of pain than white women. And so black women have to be uh, really strongly and clearly advocating for themselves. I need treatment. I need pain relief. I can't take this to be heard. Whereas with white women, they just really don't have to hardly ask for it. Um, and so these are some lingering attitudes and belief systems dating back to slavery that we have um, in our country. And I'm really encouraged to have Kamala Harris as our VP because this is a platform that she uh, is very vocal about and has uh, kind of taken on as something she's really passionate about. And she's been really working hard to try to get some bills passed to try to address this issue. But one thing that she's advocating for is implicit bias training for medical providers um, so that they can really be face-to-face -face with attitudes or perceptions that they may not even consciously be aware of that they've kind of picked up along the way. Um, and there's a, a great survey called Listening to Mothers. It's been done three times, and it's a really great way to gather data and information about women's experience of childbirth. And the last one, Listening to Mothers 3, was published in 2013. And in this study, they looked at 2,400 mothers who had recently given birth, and they asked them, do you feel like you were treated poorly because of your race, ethnicity, language, or cultural background? And 21% of the black women respondents said yes. 19% of Hispanic women said yes compared to 8% of white women. And there's some great quotes taken out of uh, the interviews that you can read about in that study. But women are sharing things like, I heard a provider insult my race in the hallway during my childbirth. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't take an expert to imagine the impact that that might have on your birth experience and your trust in your provider and that you're getting confident compassionate care and treatment. So uh, culturally, there's certainly a lot of room to grow and a lot of um, opportunity for, for great research. I have not seen any research about, um, for example, the experience of folks who are LGBTQ and how their experiences might differ compared to folks who are cis or heterosexual, and so I think there's a, a really rich opportunity for research there as well. There's just so much, so much more to learn about this. Yeah. Wow, those are some really disheartening statistics. <laughs> and Very much so. Yeah, and it, it does segue into my next question of, is it possible to prevent birth trauma? And one of the answers is, yeah, like more education around implicit bias. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's true of um, both the medical providers and also in our space in mental health. There's always opportunity for that. And I would say in line with training, um, I, I also think that providers who are working with pregnant or postpartum women need to be competent in working with perinatal mental health. Um, there are op great opportunities for 
advanced education and training around this area. But as I talked earlier about the postpartum OCD as an example of, of someone having intrusive thoughts of harming their child, you can imagine that if that client goes to the wrong provider who doesn't know how to differentiate postpartum OCD from postpartum psychosis, all of a sudden you're getting a CPS report filed for a woman who's thinking about stabbing her baby when that is not at all what's happening. She's experiencing intrusive thoughts as a symptom of OCD. And so um, I really strongly caution providers who want to work in this particular niche that they get really well trained um, in this. And perinatal mental health is, is, a, is an animal all in and of itself, and there's so much to learn. Um, but in terms of prevention of traumatic childbirth, so one big piece is screening for risk factors. So some of the risk factors that we know of are um, a history of depression, anxiety, or PTSD going into pregnancy, um, and also prior trauma, particularly childhood sexual abuse. You can just imagine really any history of sexual trauma, how that would show up in a birthing scenario, and really pregnancy in general can be really triggering for folks who have a history of sexual trauma. I don't probably need to explain that, but there's, um, you know, a lot of uh, exposure and, frankly, medical procedures that can feel fairly violating even when you don't have a history of sexual trauma. And so if you have a client who you know has any of these risk factors, it's great to talk about that and to just, it, you know, it's always tricky with this stuff because you don't want to kind of plant the seed like, oh, you've, you have this history of trauma and you're pregnant, you should expect to have a traumatic birth. That's not the way that we want to approach it or frame it. But I just think information is power. And so it's always good to just kind of have your eye towards how might these risk factors show up in your pregnancy or your delivery. Um, so screening for risk factors is great. Inquiring about your client's relationship with their provider. So I have a lot of friends who have become pregnant since I've started specializing in this. And of course, they go, what do I do? How do I avoid having a terrible birth experience? And one of the easiest ways that I kind of explain that you can make a difference is making sure that you really like and trust your OB. If you feel rushed in the room and you don't feel like you have space to ask questions and there's any degree of condescension or disrespect, move on, go to another provider and find one that you really can have an open, trusting relationship with. You should feel in your relationship with your OB that you can ask any question you want to ask and get an answer. You should not ever be made to feel that you're bothering them by asking to be informed. And I think it's really a shame that we just don't have that understanding of our relationship with medical providers. Like, and the model that we have where people come in and they spend 15 minutes with you and you can tell that, you know, they're like looking at their watch is not conducive to feeling safe, to feeling informed, to feeling comfortable. Um, and so that's piece number one. I will say a difficulty with that is that, at least in North Carolina, um, many of the OBGYN practices have a model where, let's say, they've got 10 providers. When you're pregnant, they will have you at each appointment see a different one of those 10 providers because any one of them might be on call when you go into labor. 
And at, at my practice, there were maybe 10 providers that I rotated through. And then they also shared call with a whole nother practice that had maybe 10 providers. And so the person who delivered my baby, I had never laid eyes on before. And so it's really difficult to feel like you have a trusting, safe relationship with a provider when you're not able to really build that relationship and you also don't know who's going to show up for the birth. So another thing that I recommend is getting a doula. And a doula is, a, is not a medical professional. They are a person who's trained in childbirth, um, but they're there to sort of provide emotional, physical, educational support for the birthing person and their partner and family members. And their goal is really to help the birthing person have a safe, memorable, and empowering birthing experience. So oftentimes you will meet with a doula a couple times prior to your delivery, and then ideally they'll actually be in the room with you during the delivery. And then they may offer a couple of appointments post-delivery to kind of debrief and process the birth experience. So that can make a huge difference if you know for a fact you're going to have this one person there who you know and you've got a strong relationship with. Um, they're there to provide support to you and your partner. And then you know that you've got this built-in opportunity to debrief and ask questions and process following the delivery. Oftentimes, I will offer to have a birthing person's partner come in for a session or two leading up to delivery to really talk together about fears, concerns. Sometimes I'll even sit with them and help them create a birth plan that they can then take to their provider with sort of preferences about their birth experience. Um, and we also work to do a postpartum plan about who's going to be there to support you physically, emotionally, who's going to feed you, who's going to do your laundry, who's going to help you clean your house. And all of those things, the more planning, the more preparation you do, the more you feel informed and the more you feel like you have a sense of agency and control. And then we have our plan B. So that's the other piece of birth trauma is that if you're really tied to a very clear set of circumstances, uh, you're likely to be disappointed because it is an organic experience at the end of the day. We don't have full control over our bodies. And so we talk about this is your ideal and what if that doesn't happen? How can we kind of build some expectations around that and build in some supports to sort of foster um, you feeling supported if you do feel disappointed about how things go? And maybe your goal is that you would like to not use any pain relief during delivery, but if you have to use some type of pain relief, which would you like to choose? So that at least you're kind of having some of that discussion and that forethought about a plan B option if plan A doesn't go as planned. So those are some ways that we can sort of try to prevent this experience going in. Yeah, that was really robust. Thank you. And, you know, knowing that it's impossible to totally prevent it, birth trauma happens, how do you treat it? Sure. So the research that I've seen so far is uh, there's a couple studies about CBT and EMDR. Both uh, have very small sample sizes, less than five participants in these studies. So, there, again, there is a real opportunity for research there. But I think generally um, modalities that work well with trauma 
play well here. So, of course, your go-to trauma treatment. Um, I find, though, unique to birth trauma almost than any other thing I've ever worked on in mental health, the naming of it is like maybe 50% of the treatment. The palpable relief that I hear folks have when I say, this sounds like you had a traumatic birth, and people go, that's a thing? Because we kind of think about, yeah, of course, birth is going to be painful and it's going to be hard, and we expect that. There isn't oftentimes a space for women to say, this felt different, though. This wasn't just like, yeah, it was painful and I pushed for several hours and the baby came out. I feel traumatized by this experience. And so the other piece that happens is that we hear mostly about postpartum depression when we're thinking about perinatal mental health. And now many pediatricians' offices are doing screening for postpartum depression, which is wonderful and fantastic. But what happens is women go into the pediatrician's office with their baby. They get this postpartum depression screening. They pass it with flying colors, and they think, okay, well, I guess I'm fine. They don't know there's all this other stuff. Yeah, you might not be depressed, but you might be highly anxious. You might be traumatized. You might have OCD. And so while that screening is a great thing and it's a step in the right direction, if we don't talk to folks about here's what this screening is for and it's only for this, and that doesn't mean that everything is great and fine and wonderful, then we're really missing a critical piece of that screening process and actually maybe setting women up to be misled or miss an opportunity for treatment. So that being said, I think um, kind of just the naming of it and giving folks a vocabulary to talk about it can be really, really huge. And I always offer my clients an opportunity to debrief the birth when they come in for that, you know, postpartum um, appointment. And we want to be really careful that we're asking them, how do you feel about your birth experience? Because someone might describe the delivery from hell and go, but it's fine, everyone's good, I'm good, baby's good, it's fine. And they might really mean that. And then someone else might describe a birth that to most people sounds idyllic, but something about it felt really traumatic to them. And so we really want to give them the space and opportunity to describe to us how the experience impacted them. So for those out there who are listening, people like me, who are interested in learning more about this, what would you recommend in terms of reading YouTube? What are some resources out there? Sure. So um, some books, my favorites are Traumatic Childbirth. That's by Cheryl Beck, Jean Watson Driscoll, and Sue Watson. And How to Heal a Bad Birth by Melissa Bruin and Debbie Gould is my all-time favorite as a birth trauma survivor, it was everything to me. It was a beautiful, beautiful book. And then as a clinician, was chock full of great interventions and resources and information. So I highly recommend that book. There's also a book called When Survivors Give Birth by Penny Simpkin and Phyllis Klaus, which is about um, sexual trauma survivors and the impact on childbirth. And PSI, which is Postpartum Support International, is another wonderful organization that actually in the last year or two now is offering um, a certification in perinatal mental health. And so they're working really rapidly at getting folks 
certified in this so that then a client can go and say, do you know your stuff or not? And so that's a really wonderful um, option. There's a great series, and now I'm not going to remember what it's called, but the BBC did some wonderful work on interviewing uh, survivors of traumatic childbirth, and you might be able to find that on YouTube or Google, um, but they are also a really great resource in terms of hearing firsthand what that experience is like for women. Thanks. So it's, it's nice to be able to point people in a direction of where to get more information. So thanks Absolutely. for sharing your, your knowledge. Yeah. And as we're wrapping things up, what what final parting thoughts do you have on this subject? Yeah, uh, I would say number one is that birth trauma doesn't just happen to the person giving birth. So partners are involved here and are often forgotten about, and even more so than awareness that we don't have about women who have experienced this, we also don't have hardly any information or research or literature about how this impacts birthing, non-birthing partners. And so that's something I'm really passionate about as well. Um, and just remembering that trauma is subjective. You know, we just really need to be open to anybody's experience of trauma as being really personal to them and being mindful of our own biases and feelings that we might project onto somebody about whether something qualifies as being traumatic or not. This has been really fascinating and informative and I'm really appreciative of the um, of the work that you do and the way that you've presented all this material in our in our podcast together. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, totally. And we're not done yet because we do have some rapid fire questions. <laughs> uh -oh. So okay. Yeah. So just off the top of your head, okay? Latest Netflix binge. Well, I much prefer HBO to Netflix. And most of the series that I love the most are HBO series. My favorite series that I've watched in the last year has been I May Destroy You, which is an excellent HBO show. Okay. Moving on. Last book read for pleasure. Uh, I'm actually reading a really cool book right now called Good and Mad, and it's about the way that women's anger has been used as a political tool for change. Highly recommend it. Most played band of 2020? I wouldn't say she's a band, but Beyonce's Black is King album has literally, it's the only thing I have listened to for the last year. It's incredible. Right on. Okay, favorite podcast right now, and you can't say mine. The answer is going to be really probably not okay considering I'm on a podcast. I don't listen to podcasts. <laughs> But you might change me. You might be the one that gets me sucked in, gets on the podcast bandwagon. <laughs> well, you sound like a pro, so um, thank you. Have me fooled. Yeah. Okay, you're stranded on an island. What book do you bring? Oh, what book do I bring? My favorite book that I've read in the last year probably is Untamed by Glennon Doyle and. I usually read a book and then sell it, and I kept it because I knew I would want to read it over and over again. Um, okay, I don't know if you watched. <laughs> I don't know if you watch Doctor Who. I don't watch Doctor Who, but if I you do, I do not watch Doctor Who. Okay, well, all right. Well, well, 
I was going to ask who your favorite Doctor Who is, but oh well, the, I guess I won't be able to answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer it either. All right, that's okay. Silly. All right, moving on. Um, what is the most meaningful graduate course you took? Ooh. When in grad school. Meaningful. I did a course on couples counseling that really stuck with me, and I don't actually really do couples counseling, but it kind of lit the fire in me that I wanted to do couples counseling, and I still have that on the list of things that I would like to get trained in and get some practice in. And last question, I asked Dr. Schwartz this question as well. What's one thing you think is worth remembering? Oh, interesting. Hmm. I think that uh, this is important recently with everything we've been dealing with with COVID and the election. Um, I like to remember that joy is resistance, and I, if I had to choose a word for 2021, it would be joy, and so I'm working really hard at being intentional about cultivating joy in my life, and I think it's easy to feel guilty when you experience joy and there's so much suffering and pain, but it's also just such an important uh, thing to give yourself permission to experience and feel. Joy is an act of resistance. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Bryony, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for that. Just this has been incredible. I could talk about this for hours. So thank you for having me and giving me the space to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to share this with the community. Um, great. Thanks so much. Thank you. This is the Counseling Connection Podcast. For additional information about birth trauma, including articles and additional reading, as well as information about Bryony Crane, you may visit reesewells.com. Copyright by Reese Wells, music by Alan Lawrence, artwork by Brady Lawrence.